It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Jose Antonio Vargas has been undocumented in America for more than two decades. When he was 12, his mother sent him from the Philippines to California to live with his grandparents. He moved to Washington, D.C. after college to work as a journalist at the Washington Post. He jokes about feeling nervous because of his status. I thought the Washington Monument was this phallic symbol that was like poking me <laughs> whenever I <laughs> walked around D.C. Because you know, you're totally paranoid. You're thinking people are going to find out. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Jose Antonio Vargas found out he was undocumented when he went to the DMV at age 16 to get a driver's license. His discovery led to years of hiding from the government. In this talk with the Aspen Institute's David Brooks, he remembers how hiding led to a difficult psychological state, one that many immigrants know all too well, he says. His first book, Dear America, Notes from an Undocumented Citizen, was released in bookstores today. Here's his conversation with Brooks, who's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. I, I just love this book. And um, immigration has become, in a way, the defining issue of our moment. Uh, and how we think of ourselves as Americans, how we welcome others, how we don't welcome others, and basically the relationships we find between ourselves and people around the world and how we develop intimacy and bonds in those relationships has become uh, the defining, really, issue of our time. And so um, it's just an honor. I love this book. I really love this book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and one of the things I want to talk about is now in our political debates, we think of immigrants as, a, as people or as an issue, but immigration is an experience that people go through as they assimilate or don't assimilate or just come to this country. And I wanted to walk through that, yeah. that experience. But I thought the first, the first way to, um, to enter this process is just to tell you, like, give us a description. Yeah. People have some primer on, like, what's your life been like so far? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, this is actually my first time talking about writing this book. Um, so you have an early copy of the book that's going through the final copy editing process, just FYI. So, like, this book doesn't come out until September 18th. So I'm just honored that you even are the first people to see it. Um, I just told David that when I was writing this book, I was thinking a lot about, again, conversations about identity and race in this country and where immigrants fit in that conversation. I think too often when we talk about identity in this country, it's very black and white, right? In a country that is no longer just black and white and had never really been black and white, right? But how do you talk about that in, a, you know, in an era in which anxiety among white people, which you've written about. Um, you know, this uh, incredible moment that we're at right now, kind of an artistic black renaissance that's happening. So where does this fit in all of that? Um, and I have to say, I've never, this is my first book. I've written like maybe 3,000 news articles since I was a kid. But this book was like, it was like an emotional root canal. Uh, <laughs> when I turned in the first draft in March, my editor goes, have you ever seen a therapist? Because <laughs> <laughs> I guess I wrote it, I wrote the first version of the book like I was reporting on someone else. You know, I learned how to write by reading The New Yorker, right? And so I've just 
kind of copy that style. And so I was like, I thought I was profiling this guy. <laughs> and my editor was like, um, you're actually this guy. <laughs> and the comments and the margins were like, how did you feel? How did you feel? How did you feel? And then I started thinking, since I've been in this country since I was 12, when I was sent here by my mom from the Philippines, living with my grandparents, so this is like the outline, then found that I was undocumented when I was 16, when I went to the DMV. You know, this was like 1997 in California, like in the Prop 187 era, right? So I thought I was the only non-Mexican undocumented person. That's, that's what the media said, right? This is about Mexicans. It's not about Asian people. But since I was 16, I didn't, I didn't think I was allowed to feel. <laughs> I just thought, you just try to kind of pass and lie your way through the passing, and then you hide. So actually, the book, as you'll see, is those are the three kind of big outlines, right? Lying, passing, hiding. That's the experience of, I think, every undocumented person in this country. Even more, I think, undocumented black, undocumented white, undocumented Asian immigrants that are not a part of the conversation, right? I can count. I can, how many undocumented white people I meet at, I meet at Starbucks who <laughs> are just like, hey, I'm here without papers too, but I'm white, so I pass. And my accent is English or French or German, and people think it's a good accent versus a Spanish, Mandarin, Korean accent, right? So thankfully, <laughs> that when my editor, Julia Chaffetz, said, you know, have you ever gotten therapy before? The answer was no, <laughs> except I've seen every episode of Frasier. Uh, <laughs> that, was pa that was part of passing. Um, so I wrote about this book feeling like I was going through therapy. Like it was, um, it was such a gift to be able to have the privilege to write it and make sense of what has happened. You know, I'm a grown ass man, I'm 37. So been here 25 years in August. And I don't really know how I got to where I got. And so the book was a way of kind of reconciling with that. Yeah. Walk us through the moment when you realized that you were undocumented. Because you came here, you didn't know. I didn't know. I was 12. And so um, walk us through that moment. Yeah. So actually, my, I, I was just at the American Library Association. Have you been to this event? It's like the Lollapalooza oh, yeah. librarians. It was awesome. It was in New Orleans. <laughs> a lot of just, bifocals. It was awesome. It was like three days ago two day, two day, in New Orleans. And um, it was wonderful to be able to thank all those librarians because like, I wouldn't be who I am without the Mountain View Public Library, right? Like that was like my passing museum. Everything I learned about being American, I learned from the library. So I, at the library is where I saw the brochure that said, if you wanna get a driver's license, this is, where, this is what you need to bring with you, which was a green card and like a student ID. So I didn't tell my grandparents, so I went to the DMV on my bike, listening to Alanis Morissette and Voice to Men on my Walkman. You know, I wasn't paying attention really, so when the woman called me up on the booth, I gave her my green card and then I gave her my Mountain View High School student ID. And she flipped it around twice and she looked at me and she was like, this is fake, the green card. My first instinct was she was lying. And my second instinct was I'm not Mexican. I actually said, I'm not Mexican to her. I mean, that's how much I had internalized that this was a Mexican thing. That's what the newspaper said. That's what the radio said. That's what the news said, right? And then she was like, I don't care what you are. <laughs> this is fake. 
don't come back here again. So then I rode my bike back home, and then my grandfather was a, was a security guard, and so he always worked the night shift, so he was always home during the day. And so that's when I confronted him, and that's when all the lies kind of became clear that I was smuggled here, that he had paid somebody $4,500 to smuggle me, that the uncle that I thought was my uncle that brought me through the airport was actually a smuggler, um, and that I thought my mom was going to follow. She's not going to follow because she can't. And then basically it was, like, it was like I thought I was part of a mob. I was like, what? Like how? And then my grandfather said the plan was marry a woman and poof, you'd become an American. Like Sandra Bullock from The Proposal or something, right? <laughs> and then, of course, that's around that time. Do you remember AOL chat rooms? <laughs> AOL chat rooms? So that's how I found that I was gay, was AOL chat rooms. Um, <laughs> so then that was the time that I outed myself to my grandfather and said, I'm not going to marry. Basically, I'm not going to lie about another thing. So, so the lying was enough. So I told him I was gay and that I wasn't going to marry a woman. So that's how that happened. <laughs> and, but I have to say, David and I were just talking about this. Like, um, all of my teachers and my principal at Mountain View High School, like, they were the ones who, you know, this was in the late 90s. There was no Dream Act. There was no Google. There was no language around all of this. They were the ones that, like, found a way for me to go to college, found a way for me to get mentorship, right? And I write about that in the book because I feel like, when we talk about immigration in this country, we don't talk about those people. Like, we don't talk about all those countless Americans of all backgrounds who help people like me pass, right? It's, I mean, I, with all due respect to African-American history, I call it kind of this 21st century underground railroad of people, mm -hmm. right? That, like, they know you're undocumented, but they're going to let you work, right? They know that you don't have papers, but we're going to find you a college scholarship. And at Define American, which is this organization that I started seven years ago, Damien actually is on the advisory board. And I have to say, there's a woman here that's really important in my life, Gabby Pacheco. Can you stand up, Gabby? Sorry. Oh. So this woman, I was a, uh, <laughs> I was a, uh, and I think that's really important because too often when, when we talk about historical movements, women always get left out of the history books. So this woman is like history. So when I was a reporter for the Washington Post, and I was going to the Huffington Post, I started reading about her. So she was one of the first dreamers who came out. And then she walked, she led this walk from Miami to DC called The Trail of Dreams. And I read about it in the New York Times and then I found her on YouTube, then I stalked her on Facebook. And I was like, how can she be out <laughs> about this stuff when I'm you know, scared? So she was really kind of the person who inspired me to like, think bigger than myself and not, and think that there was actually a way to do this that was beyond myself. And so that's why it's perfect now, now Gabby is on the governing board of Define American and she runs the largest scholarship program for undocumented students, the dream.us that Don Graham started. So yeah, she's very special. So there's this period when you, your life was based on a lot of lies. When yeah. you were applying to jobs at different yeah. papers. <laughs> Actually, when I was reading that period, that section of the book, I was reminded, weirdly, of Vaclav Havel, of Solzhenitsyn, people who lived in totalitarian states huh. had to live surrounded by lies and how destabilizing that is. So you were, you know, there were certain forums. Are you a citizen? Yeah. Describe what it was like to live 
surrounded by that sense that you had to lie to get a job, lie to... So the only people that have not read this book are lawyers. Because <laughs> if it was up to immigration lawyers, I wouldn't even be talking to you at all. I wouldn't have written a book. I would not have come out as undocumented. I would not do anything. Because in the book, I started a chapter actually outlining how I committed fraud, right? So my first job out of high school was at the San Francisco Chronicle as a copy boy, like delivering faxes and mail. Um, and so that was the first time I ever like met an employment form, like an, um, you know, uh, the, the form that E-Verify is supposed to catch, right? So on the form, it clearly states there are boxes where you have to check U.S. citizen, resident alien, and I couldn't check resident alien because my green card is fake. So, so I had a conversation with myself, 20-minute conversation probably with myself on the third floor of the Chronicle building in San Francisco. Just like, when I check the citizen box and it says perjury, what am I really signing up for? But I did. <laughs> Which I was not legally supposed to do. And I kept doing it. So the Chronicle, the Philadelphia Daily News, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, the New York, like every single job that I had, a full-time job, I had to sign this form, and I had to have a conversation with myself about what does being a citizen mean? Hence the subtitle in the book. I cannot think of a more important concept and word in the world today than citizenship. I feel um, Eric Liu, um, who founded uh, Citizen University, who's a big part of Aspen's family, you know, what he started, this whole conversation about what it means to be a citizen. I just think that's the conversation. But as you know in the book, I justified so many of those lies because of Toni Morrison. Like, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, reading that when I was in high school, like, they kind of created this um, space where law, what was legal, wasn't necessarily what was just. Right? I couldn't, I couldn't, just because something is legal doesn't mean it's what's right. Right? Um, I ended up majoring in college in political science and African American studies. And like, that understanding the history of black people in this country, which led to me understanding the history of Asian people in this country, like the Karamatsu decision, for example, understanding Latino history in this country. I didn't know anything about Irish history. Because I thought you all were just white. I didn't know you were Irish and Italians and Germans. I actually think we've done all of you a disservice for just calling you white. Like you, th that was constructed and now we're deconstructing it, right? We have to. Because we have to figure out how do we deconstruct this black and white creation so that we can figure out what's the vision for everybody to be included. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. And I think, I think so far in this resistance that we're living through, I feel as if... People will tell you very easily what they're against and they can't seem to tell you what they're for, right? Like what vision are we offering people? It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for listening. Today's featured speaker, Jose Antonio Vargas, runs a nonprofit called Define American. It works to fight injustice and anti-immigrant hate through storytelling. In another discussion at the Aspen Ideas Festival, Vargas was on stage with others deeply involved in America's immigration problem. The hatred that develops and becomes prejudice has a driving factor, explained Vargas. What, what is motivating so much of this, right? A lot of it is fear. 
Find the talk, What Is It Like to Be Inside the American Immigration System Today, on our website, aspenideas.org. A link is also in the show notes for this podcast episode. Let's get back to today's discussion. Here's David Brooks. Now, you, um, you came out. Your grandparents were not thrilled. <laughs> uh, and, but you did have a family who embraced you. So describe yeah. that, the group of people who came around you and yeah, lifted well. you up. So the first one was uh, my choir teacher, Mrs. Denny. Um, she was the first adult I ever told I was here illegally because she wanted the choir that I was a part of to go to Japan for the spring tour. And so I pulled her aside one afternoon when she announced this to class and I'm like, Mrs. Denny, I, <laughs> I can't go. I don't have the right papers. She's like, oh, what are you talking about? We'll get you the right papers, you know. No, Mrs. Denny, like, I can't go. <laughs> So she finally got it. Then the next day, without telling anybody, she told the whole class that we were going to go to Hawaii instead. Right? So my classmates, by the way, didn't know the story until I told Stephen Colbert about it. <laughs> wow. On the Colbert Report seven years ago, I talked about Mrs. Denny publicly, and my classmates, like 30 of them, and they always wondered why we didn't go to Japan. <laughs> um, I think it was like Osaka, Osaka, I think. So I haven't been able to leave the country, right? I don't want to use the word stuck. Um, <laughs> But I've been kind of stuck for 25 years. So, but my classmates are not, because all of them had papers. And so they were like, man, we could have gone to Japan. <laughs> uh, so she was the first one. And then my principal, Pat Hyland, was wondering why I wasn't applying to college. I was the only senior in class who wasn't going to go to college. And she's like, so then I outed myself to her. Um, so it's like all these outing, right? Um, the biggest person, though, is a guy named Peter Pearl who taught me the meaning of the word mensch. I didn't know what that was. Uh, but I got hired at the Washington Post right after college. And so this was 2004. And when I got to the Post, um, you know, to be undocumented at the Chronicle in San Francisco is a completely different thing than to be undocumented in D.C. in the George W. Bush war on terrorism era. I thought the Washington Monument was this phallic symbol that was like poking me <laughs> whenever I <laughs> walked around DC. Cause you know, you're totally paranoid. You're thinking people are gonna find out, you know? People are gonna somehow find out that you're, I was assigned to cover like the White House state dinner for the Japanese prime minister. <laughs> and I remember Dana Milbank, who's a wonderful guy, columnist for the Washington Post. I remember when I was assigned to go, I was so worried about going that I forgot that I had to wear formal clothes. Because you know, I, I dress like this, so like I don't, so he was like, Jose, you're going to the White House, you need a tie. I was like, oh. I was so worried that like, my social security number is not valid. How, can the social, how come the Secret Service did not know that? Um, so I was so paranoid that I told this guy, Peter Pearl, who was one of the editors there, uh, he was hired the same year I was born at the Washington, he, he was hired in 1981 at the Washington Post, the same year I was born. And I told him, I outed myself to him and told him fake papers, fake everything, the driver's license I wasn't supposed to have. And then to my surprise, he was like, um, <laughs> the first thing he said, you make so much more sense now. Because <laughs> I guess I'm like walking around like I had the whole world in my back. The second thing he said, which surprises me to this day, don't tell anybody else. <laughs> Keep going. So when I got assigned to cover Hillary Clinton's campaign in Ohio, I have to ride her plane. I'm like calling Peter going like, aren't they gonna, I got assigned to cover Sarah Palin for like a week in Ohio, Indiana, Ohio. 
Um, I was worried when the Pulitzer happened because I ended up winning a part of this prize thing and you're supposed to give them a social security number <laughs> in the form. And so I'm like, isn't that, oh, Jose, you worry too much, you know? <laughs> um, but Peter, when I outed myself seven years ago, I told Peter that we didn't, I didn't need to out him, right? I didn't want to get him in trouble. I didn't want to get Mrs. Denny in trouble. I didn't want to get my principal in trouble. But to my surprise, they all said, no, 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 no. Like, I'm proud of what I did, you know? So they also came out, right? Um, actually, the Washington Post, I don't know. To, to this day, I haven't asked Peter exactly what the punishment was. But the Washington Post basically said in a statement that, you know, um, he should not have done what he did, that it was wrong. Um, but then I think about it again, like, how many other people do that every day, right? In any profession, right? They're like Peter Pearls all around this country making that split-second decision. And again, they're not a part of the conversation. Politics have failed them. Policies have failed them, right? Like, they're the ones making these split-second decisions about who gets to stay, who's welcome. I have a special place in my heart for, like, teachers. I just think educator, I mean, education is like a sacred thing. And I cannot imagine, Gabby and I talk a lot about this, like the voices of teachers, to me, professors, is even more important at a time like this. Again, I don't care what party. I've met Republican teachers in Alabama who are like, I can't believe my kids are not showing up to class because they're afraid that their parents may get caught. Their voices are not the ones that we hear of. And, I, and in the book, for me, part of honoring them is putting them in the book. Yeah. One of the things I loved about Miss Denny when she decided to go to Japan, <laughs> she and, and decided to go to Hawaii, not Japan, is like we're not leaving a student behind. It was a beautiful. That's what she statement. said. Yeah. We're not, and honestly, but that has really carried me through all of what I do. Like probably the proudest thing that I'm proud of about Define American, and I know you'll check out the website. Um, <laughs> I'm proud of it because I'm. I think there's not many undocumented people that actually started a nonprofit organization that employs 15 people. I provide really good health benefits and insurance, by the way. The same insurance that I can't get myself because I'm undocumented. <laughs> so, um, but when, I, when, when we do this work, like being inclusive is not just like a, it's not just something we say, it's something we do. Yeah. Like last year at, at, at the Kennedy Center, we actually held a convening of Native American tribal leaders and undocumented immigrant leaders to talk about land and citizenship. That's the kind of conversation you're not seeing on ABC News. We have been very, very um, intentional in really including the undocumented black network, right? Uh, there's about 600,000 undocumented black immigrants. And again, they're rarely a part of the conversation. Um, I'm really working on undocumented Irish people in Boston to do a big coming out thing. <laughs> it's been really hard, but <laughs> hopefully so, that happens. So explain to us your status now. Like, why is it nice sweeping through here? I don't know. Here? When the book comes out, I think the first sentence is like, I don't know where I'll be when you read this book. Because I don't know. I mean, when this comes out in September, Trump can easily... I, I was arrested. I wrote about this in the book. I got arrested four summers ago in Texas, the same place where the kids are being arrested now. So after I was um, arrested, after I was detained for eight hours, they gave me um, my first American papers, which was actually a warrant. <laughs> um, so it's called, it's called a notice to appear. Um, so if they decide to call me into a judge, then they can make a decision whether or not to deport me. So the Trump administration did not do that. I don't know what the Trump, I cannot 
have any expectations at all about what I'm basically preparing for the worst, right? Because look, like part of the privilege of doing this work is I have to be really out there. So if he says, come get them, I'm packed, <laughs> right? Like I haven't seen my mom for 25 years. So that will be a nice reunion to see her in the Philippines. Um, So, um, well, I moved. I'm like tearing oh. up here. <laughs> um, take us through, you know, one of the things we talked about earlier is, um, well, actually, let me, let me go to another question. Uh, so I'm a Trump voter. Let's say that. Yeah. And I think we have immigration laws. Yep. And people wait in line. Yep. They come here. They obey the law. Yeah. And you circumvented that whole system. Yep. So why is that good? That's probably the question I get asked because we've been very intentional talking to Trump voters and, you know, Republican Tea Party people in, in particular. Um, that's why I do Fox News a lot because they see me on Fox News and then before you know it, I'm getting invited to the Chamber of Commerce meeting in Nebraska, right? And they don't understand how I pay taxes. Like, by the way, did you guys know that? So undocumented immigrants pay billions of dollars in taxes. I have paid so much taxes, I should be a Republican. I've paid so much taxes. <laughs> And you know, this last tax season when I was signing this check, which was kind of big, um, I kept saying, I love America, I love public schools, I love public <laughs> libraries, I love roads, right? Like when I signed that check, I'm like, even if you don't want me in this country, I love it so much that I'm gonna sign you this check. How do so, you feel about agriculture subsidies? <laughs> I've been all throughout Iowa, I can talk to you about that, but I'm not gonna get there. Um, so. For me, though, one of the biggest struggles in this issue as a journalist who happens to be undocumented is how poorly most Americans understand what this issue is. Like, like the question about why don't you wait in the back of a line? Or, you know, I just did Bill Maher. That's in the book. I did Bill Maher like a few months ago. And after we did the taping thing, Bill says to me, I just don't understand why you just can't get legal. <laughs> And I was like, this is Bill Maher. Like, if he doesn't understand how someone like me can get legal, then we're really screwed. You know what I mean? Like, Bill Maher made it sound like I just have to turn off a light switch and poof, I'm an American stealing your welfare, right? When the reality is there's actually no process. There's no line for someone like me to get in the back of. If you told me, if you told me that I should wait 20 years to become a US citizen, okay. Now, mind you, I have no say on this. I can't vote. Although, you know, who's that guy in uh, Kansas who keeps saying that undocumented people are voting? What do we vote with? Our Bank of America debit card? Like, what do we? <laughs> we don't have ID. That's the whole point, you know? So I don't understand when he says that. Um, but I'm always amazed how people don't understand that there's no process for us to legalize our way. So my mom can't even get a tourist visa to come visit here because she doesn't own property and she's not a college graduate. So what does that tell you about race and class? Now, if she were a French woman and she wanted to go see Hamilton for the weekend, she could just buy a plane ticket and poof, she's in America overstaying her visa, right? 40% um, of people who are here illegally overstayed their visa. Did you guys know that? 40%, right? The fastest growing undocumented population are Asian, not Latinos. So all the border talk, I don't know what that's about. Well, I think we all know what it's about, <laughs> right? So, Give us a process, give us a line. I'd be more than happy. I have to tell you though, um, when people say to people like us that we should earn our citizenship, I don't know what else you need us to do. You, you're detaining us with our own tax dollars, by the way. 
You're detaining and deporting us with our own tax dollars. You call us a bunch of illegals like we're like insects off your backs. You couldn't survive without us, right? Your economies would collapse. The economy of Texas, just the contractor industry, the agricultural industry would collapse, right? And then you tell us that we should earn this. So very politely, I am just really curious how all of you have earned your American citizenship. Very politely, <laughs> I'm not trying to be confrontational, right? Like, what have you done? What are you doing? Just curious, right? Because for me, becoming a citizen means knowing that the world doesn't revolve around me. It's knowing that black people in this country who are citizens of this country, who built this country, are still treated like second-class citizens. Native Americans are many, in many ways invisible, right? Um, and white people in this country, now that I've, you know, I made a documentary on TV called White People a couple years ago. You should check it out. It's on YouTube. Um, that was my, really, my real introduction to, like, lower middle class white people, kind of struggling white people who don't think of themselves as white, who don't know what this is about, who feel ignored by the Acela Express of journalism between DC and New York, right? Who hates anything that's not Fox News. So how do we get them? So when I think of citizenship, I think of knowing that I only occupy one space and I'm surrounded by all of these people. And that kind of hyper awareness to me is something that at a time like this to me is important. Season two of our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, comes out next week. The show aims to swing open the doors of the Aspen Institute and introduce you to the stories and changemakers inside. One of our first episodes focuses on the story of the American Indian, a story Yale professor Ned Blackhawk says isn't being told. We really, as a nation, should be deeply ashamed of where we are at collectively regarding our kind of collective understanding of this vital part of our nation's past. Aspen Insight dives into the American West in the 19th century in its upcoming season. That story, along with many others about education, the economy, sports and society, and much more will be told in Season 2. Find Aspen Insight in your favorite podcast player. You can also find a link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's show. David Brooks. Let's talk about the process of passing, part two. Yeah. So one of the things that resonated with me, like I was born in Canada, so I didn't immigrate too far. Um, Wait a second, I didn't know that. Oh, gosh, I didn't know that part. But, okay, cool. but my <laughs> grandparents were Russian immigrants. Yeah. And so, but when you describe, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about immigration, these days we talk about people. Yeah. And we talk about the laws, but we don't talk about the experience. Yeah. The processes, you, the stages you go through as an immigrant. And when you described the process of passing, becoming sort of hyper-American for a little while, yeah. it totally resonated with my family. And I think every immigrant family has the same stages you go through. So. But you know, when, it, when, I, when I was writing that, I was also very aware of the fact that I grew up in Mountain View, where Google is. So if I had grown up in like East Side San Jose, which was only like 20 miles away, like if I wasn't exposed to, uh, you know, kind of an, a middle-class, affluent, white community where there was like an Andronico's grocery store. And that was like a, you know, going to Andronico's was like, what was that, right? And that's where I saw The New Yorker for the first time was an Andronico's. And I picked it up. Like, meaning I was exposed to 
you know, Toni Morrison says this, right? Like, everybody else has to, everybody else has to hyphenate, but white is America, right? And so I was so exposed to white America, uh, you know, and that meant like watching all the films I found at the library. If I wasn't exposed to that, I'm not sure I could have passed as easy as I did. I wonder all those years when I was a reporter at the Post, um, they did not, they did not question it because I talk like this and I look like this. Um, you know, mind you, I think I said this in the book, like, the moment I found that I was undocumented, the first thing I did was get rid of my big, thick Filipino accent, which is kind of like that. So that meant watching a lot of Charlie Rose on PBS <laughs> and Dr. Dre and Jay-Z. I thought I had to <laughs> talk white and black so I could really pass, right? <laughs> So like you wouldn't, I didn't speak Tagalog to people. I, you know, I was like, how do I use $10 words? How do I subscribe to the New York Review books? I didn't understand anything in that thing, right? <laughs> uh, commentary magazine was like, oh my God, what is this? You know, it was just like, but those are the things I thought I needed to do to pass, right? But I wonder, that's why writing the book was such a therapy because I wondered what the cost of that has been for me. And when we think of assimilation, we only think of it kind of we're assimilating to you, but what is the cost of that assimilation to us? For me, a lot of it was being embarrassed of my own grandmother, right? Even though she's such a naturalized US citizen, I was embarrassed to like introduce her to people because she spoke English really poorly. She was the kind of person who at Safeway at the grocery store wouldn't even ask a clerk where the toilet paper was because she felt embarrassed. No, she's a US citizen, she's naturalized, right? So I hated that I had to, that I realized that I was actually, you know, all through my 20s, I think I spent that decade wanting to be so American that I rejected anything Filipino or anything Tagalog or anything that had to do with where I was from, right? And what home means. Yeah. Uh, maybe I passed too much. <laughs> actually, in the book, right? I mean, right. there was this undocumented day laborer who's Mexican who after I came out as undocumented seven years ago, I met him at a rally and he was like, you can't represent us. You're too successful. <laughs> and then I heard him say, you're not even Mexican. <laughs> now, that was kind of my reaction and then oh, that haunted me. I can deal with all the people who want me deported on Twitter. I can deal with that. But like what that man said haunted me for like months. And then I had to figure out why and it was because I, I passed, right? Like because of the way I talk, the way I look. Like in this country, I have to tell you, by the way, I don't know if you know this, there are 55 million um, Latinos in this country. Did you guys know that? 55, about 55 million. Um, Mexicans in this country today are what the Germans were in like the 19th century. The fact that we have so married illegal and criminality to the Mexican people, I, I, don't, I cannot even think what is that doing to the mental health of all these young Mexican Americans in this country. I, 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 that's why it's even more important if you're not Mexican to call it out, right? Um, mental health, that's another thing. Like we don't, in writing this book, my whole goal was how do I get into my own mental state in which, you know, when my editor goes, feel, how did you feel? Oh yeah, that was crappy. Okay, <laughs> more. Um, <laughs> I don't know, right? Like really finding crap. the language, but then not to overwrite. Oh my God, Toni Morrison. Like, you know, there's all these YouTube clips of Toni Morrison on YouTube talking about writing, and she was like my coach throughout this whole writing process. Like, do not overwrite, 
right? Like writing the despair that is like, because some events are like, you know, how do I write about my mom and leaving her that morning at the airport and not remembering anything? I didn't remember anything. I don't even remember what she said. All she said was, here's a jacket. It's going to get cold there. That was the last thing she said I remembered. How ungrateful of me to not remember what she said, right? And then the biggest memory was when the plane took off and I realized that the Philippines was surrounded by water. I'd never been on a plane before, so I didn't know that archipelago meant water. And then to this day, I associate water with connectedness because water connects all of us, right? It connects all the countries. And I feel so disconnected from my mother that I can't get, I don't like, I'm the kind of person who goes to Hawaii and doesn't go to the beach. Like, I just don't. So that, admitting that to myself, that I'm so broken and screwed up that I can't even see water and not think of my mom. And the fact that the water separate us, which should not be separating us. Um, and like, you know, the, the agony of like doing a Skype conversation with her or FaceTime and the fact that we have technology that have allowed to take over borders and yet there are actually literally people who can't, like, if you want to like give yourself a jolt sometimes, there are people who literally Skype their relatives' funerals. An immigrant have parents dying somewhere and they're Skyping the whole funeral. That's what immigration is, right? And I think, again, we don't talk about it from this experiential way. And I think if we're really going to solve this issue beyond what immigration reform is, I'm going to document it. I couldn't really tell you what immigration reform is, right? But if we're going to solve it, I think understanding what the human toll of this, I think for me, has to be at the forefront of that. What does your mom say to you? Is she happy that she sent you here? Or what? <laughs> That's in the last part of the book. Uh, um, so the book kind of brought us together in a way because I had to talk to her beyond, you know, how, am I, how are my siblings doing or how much money do you need this month and that stuff, right? Um, I asked her if she regretted sending me here. And she said, how can I regret that? Look at what you've become. And then when I told her that I'm not exactly sure that I like what I've become, Silence <laughs> on the phone. And then we talk about home and what it means to come home. Um, you know, she's in her 60s now. She's 62. Sometimes when, uh, when the trolls get really creative, they send me emails saying, you how ungrateful of you as a son. You really should just go back home and see your mom. What if she dies and you're not there? God, I hate those people. Because <laughs> they really cut to the, you know, they cut to the, the, the thing of it. But in a way, they're kind of right, right? Like, here I am talking to all of you, and I can't see my mom. So does that make me a bad son? Should I just go leave now? And I've written the book. It's done. Um, I had this really surreal thing happen a couple of weeks ago. You know, I think every immigrant is a product of their communities, and I'm a product of Mountain View. That's where I'm from. So the school board of the district that I grew up in decided to uh, name a Jose Antonio Vargas Elementary School. That's, that's crazy. Um, the irony is, it's from K to fifth grade, the years that I was not in America. <laughs> when they first contacted me about it, I said, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm too young. I mean, young, I guess, 37. You know, that's like grown, grown age, right? So I don't know. Um, 
But then, you know, I started thinking when the principal, the principal and I spoke last week, and that's when it became really real. And he was like, your name is going to be in the diplomas of these kids. 425 kids. Um, <laughs> and then he said, these kids are going to have to ask their parents, you know, who you are. So after that, you know, I was like, if I have to leave this fall, I think it's going to be okay. Like, you know, because the beauty of it is every single person who has welcomed me and loved me, they're going to be in that school, right? Like every teacher, Mrs. Denny, Mrs. Fuqua, Mrs. Fitzgerald, Mr. Farrell, all of those people that like taught me everything, like they're going to be a part of that school. And, they're, you know, like that's not going to end and that's always going to be there. Well, unless they name it something else, I guess. But... Um, so that was, you know, I have to tell you, though, my grandmother, when I first came out, Diane Sawyer did this thing. She had no idea who Diane Sawyer was. I testified in front of Congress. She didn't know what the Capitol building was when I took her there. When she saw in the newspaper that it was Jose Antonio Vargas Elementary School, that she got, <laughs> right? Like, that was the best gift. Like, my grandmother understood what this was about now. She understands what it's about. And it's bigger than just the name, right? So we have a rule at the Aspen Institute when the moderator starts crying, we'll oh. <laughs> questions from the floor. Uh, so let's do that. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. You have a tissue? I don't... I, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Um, <laughs> questions, please. Yes, right please. Questions. Yes. I want to thank you for being here. Um, it's an inspiration to hear your story. Um, I come from Phoenix, Arizona. And hey. so I moved from California to Arizona in 03. And our communities... Um, Witnessed the, the beginning of um, the anti-immigration laws from 2006 and 2007 till now. Yep. And so people in Phoenix that are watching this um, are really inspired by you. Um, I guess I took a Latin migration class <laughs> last semester at Arizona State University. And I learned that from 1790 to about 150 years, there was no borders. Yep. And... This place was open to free whites only. Um, like he was sharing, many Germans um, were inhabiting the United States. Yep. And for many years, people that don't look American or European um, become oppressed. At the same time, because the Germans were assimilating too good, there's also records that show that Americans were not liking the Germans. Um, and just really quick, I wanted to share the oldest written documents in America are called codices, and they're written by the Mayans, Mixtecs, yep. and the Aztecs. Those people that were locking up south of the border in Mexico come from Guatemala and different parts of Latin America. We all have indigenous roots. We have been here for over 15,000 years ago before Europeans came and migrated less than 500 years ago. So I just wanted to share that to give some perspective. Um, world migration is something that has happened throughout the entire history. And we need to learn how to have solidarity, share our stories, um, and learn from each other and help each other. Let me just respond to something that you were saying about, um, I met this woman the other day. So I, I, I was supposed to go to David's thing on Monday, but I was, um, giving a commencement speech at Frederick Douglass Academy in Harlem, which is an awesome school. And it was where James Baldwin went to high school. So I was like, I'm totally going to go. Um, 
But then afterwards, this black woman comes up to me and comes out and tells me she's undocumented from the Caribbean. And then she goes, Jose, do you believe in God? I'm Catholic, Spanish colonialism, <laughs> right? Um, I watch a lot of Woody Allen films when I was young. Crimes and misdemeanors like screwed me up for a good three years. So like the whole idea of God and like, so I, I just like, you know, there was a scene in Dead Man Walking. <laughs> Susan Sarandon says to Sean Penn's character, I'm so crazy, this is how I know stuff. So she goes, um, I want the last thing you see in this world to be a face of love. So you look at me when they do this thing, you look at me, I'll be the face of love for you. So I think of that as God. So I said that to this woman and she goes, well, you don't believe in God. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then she goes, then she goes, Jose, God has been hiding me for 13 years in this country. They can't find me. God has been hiding me for 13 years. So I need you to believe in God because God has been hiding you too, even if you're so public. So I started really thinking about the role of religion at a time like this, right? And then I started like beating myself up on the plane ride here thinking like, am I not religious enough? Should I be thinking about that? I don't know, but it just caught me thinking how many people, you know, in this country, there would be no Catholic church without Latinos and without Filipinos, right? And so many of us are so mixed up in this whole immigration thing. And so I wonder what role they played in this whole process. So for anybody watching, whatever you believe to, I hope that you believe that there is a greater power out there that's beyond chain migration and beyond locking kids up and beyond immigration reform that is thinking bigger for all of us. Hi, Jose, you are amazing. Oh. Just, just, just brings tears to my eyes. Um, I'm from San Antonio, Texas, and we have a um, precious, really extended family member who's Polish. Mm. He is as American as I am. Um, we have tried to get his papers um, through our senators, through our congressmen, and we have gotten uh, um, immigration attorneys, yeah. have gotten nowhere. Nowhere. Yeah. After 9-11, just, it's just... He had to go to New Mexico to get a driver's license. I offered to drive him. Um, and he now has gotten married fraudulently. Um, yeah. To it has that fixed stuff? Yes. You know? Um, if it is completely fraudulent. I even offered to give him a party um, to get his papers in to yeah. be legal. And it, like you, he... Every, he pays taxes. He is an entrepreneur. He employs, I think, 20-something people. And he had to resort hmm. to, getting to getting married to an American citizen fraudulently to be legal. So what, 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 what we're really hoping, by the way, when the book comes out, you know, we're doing like a book tour thing, which is my lawyers are all like <laughs> prepared. But like our hope is in every single one of these book tours. And I really want to go to places that I shouldn't be in. Um, is like actually have community members share their stories to us. Because actually, when you go to defineamerican.com, this has been the biggest part of our work. So we are the largest collection of undocumented stories online. So if you're a reporter from Milwaukee and you're looking for a DACA recipient who wants to be a nurse, you go to us and we connect you to that person. So after DACA was announced, you know, DACA ended last fall, 
Shonda Rhimes like reached out because Shonda Rhimes is amazing, and was like, "How do I help? You know, inform people." And so we actually sent undocumented. There are about a hundred undocumented medical students in this country right now. I don't know if you guys knew that. So we sent like five undocumented medical students to the writers' room of Grey's Anatomy, and had an entire episode in Grey's Anatomy a couple of months ago just on a DACA doctor. So for us, stories, right, at a time like this, is a way to correct, a way to intervene, and a way to really like liberate people. So we're hoping that when we do the book tour, people will come out like you and talk about people who they know in their lives. Because for the most part, people don't really, um, especially now at a time like this, there's many undocumented people who will used to be out who don't want to be out anymore. I have probably spoken to at least 20 DACA recipients who have left. They've decided to leave. And they usually contact me because they feel guilty about leaving because I'm still here. And, I finally come up with a good response, which is that you can take America with you, <laughs> right? Like wherever you go, like you're a product of America. So even if you're in China or the UK or Canada, a lot of people are going to Canada. Should I have said that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Canada. Um, so I just tell them, you know, you gotta go where you gotta go. Like I was really lucky. I started doing this work when I was 30. So I had an entire career in journalism. I, I don't know what I would have done if I wasn't a journalist. I think it really saved me. Like it was, it was like, uh, that's why journalism is so important to me. Arthur Miller, the playwright said that um, a good newspaper is a country talking to itself, right? And I think that's always our goal as journalists is to get people to really, that's what David does in his columns every week and he's always trending because he's usually saying something that people don't want to hear, right? <laughs> but like how do we get people to really hear each other, especially at a time like this, right? Um, so stories for us are really important. Any Let's other? Go one more. One more. Yes. Hello. Um, my name is Huang. I'm from the Basel Scholars Program, and thank you to both of you for speaking on this topic. And my question for both of you is: How can we help to raise the voices of Asian, Black, and European undocumented groups, mm. and create a community of all undocumented immigrants to reveal to America their collective situations? Very quick for me. So for us, it's been collecting these stories. I have to tell you, when, when, when the government says there's 11 million of us who are here illegally, I don't believe that number. Because that's usually is coming from the Pew Hispanic Center, right? If I just counted all the undocumented Koreans, Chinese, Filipinos, undocumented Canadians, French people that I've met, it's way more than 11 million people, right? Way more. Like we have, and, and, I, and again, Trump, and I'm glad that Trump hasn't even come up yet in this conversation. Um, because, you know, this is bigger than Trump, right? Like, the reason why I can't leave this country, right, is because of what Bill Clinton signed into law in the mid-'90s. If I leave, I would accept a 10-year bar. This entire detention system that we have was a direct product of what Bush started after the war on during the war on terror, right? So it's way bigger than Trump, although Trump has taken the full advantage of it. So for me, Trump has been a distraction because he has kept telling us that this is just about Mexicans and just about Latinos. And I think that's been a mistake and has been a real disservice to all of us in this country. So, but what do you think about that, David? Uh, the only thing I'd say, my um, grand, great-grandfather came over here in the 1890s. He had a son named Irving Browning, who hmm. was a director, a movie director. He did uh, silent movies. And he did the Gish Sisters, a lot of the big movies of that era. And he, they filmed in those days the movies on Atlantic City Beach because they needed yeah. a lot of light. And he specialized in westerns. <laughs> so he directed most of the early westerns. 
And if you went to his apartment in Washington Heights in New York, it was like being in Wyoming. There was like chaps, there was like uh, the guns from Custer's Last Stand, the powder horns. And so he came to this country and so badly wanted to be American that he ended up defining America <laughs> as an immigrant in the way that uh, Irving Berlin, Yankee Doodle Dandy. God bless America. He, he was a Jewish immigrant. Yeah. And it was in many ways the immigrants who defined America. My great uncle, Irving Browning, did all these Westerns. The guy himself never went west of the Hudson River. <laughs> he never, he would have felt so uncomfortable here. <laughs> but he knew Jewish New York. But he had this vision of America. And so it's a reminder that the, the America we know is really an imagined America of immigrants. Uh, and, the, and it's just an endless cycle. Uh, and I don't know, I get to do, I've, done, I've been here 13, 14 years. I've had two events that really moved me. Last year I was with a guy named Adam Hamilton who's coming oh, Friday, yeah. who's a pastor from Kansas City. And this is the other. Um, and immigration has somehow become the core issue of our country, like who belongs and what does belonging mean. So I just want to thank you. This has been a great event. Oh, thank you. David Brooks is an op-ed columnist for The New York Times and an executive director at the Aspen Institute. Jose Antonio Vargas is a leading voice for the human rights of immigrants. He founded Define American and released his first book this month. It's called Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.